Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Of all the places on God's green earth, why did he choose the land of Israel? Why not Morocco? Why not Turkey? Or India? Or France? Or Florida? Or Nebraska? Isn't Everybody thinks Texas is the real promised land, right? They have pretty big heads down there, just like everything else. It's just bigger in Texas, right? Um, I didn't mind Texas when I visited there, by the way. I thought it was kind of great. But um, not all of it. If it was up to me, I think I would have chosen maybe the Swiss Alps or a beach in Mexico for the promised land. Like something more paradisical. I would not have chosen Israel. (laughs) I mean, why did God choose that land of all places? This teeny, tiny, little, insignificant, seemingly insignificant strip of land. That's that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue to study this incredibly irrelevant topic. Just kidding. Uh, Thinking about the land of Israel. We want to think biblically about it, and, and this is a pressing issue, the question of whose land it is, Israel or Palestine's, is this is not a game. We are not voting for a team here. I'm on Team Israel, I'm on Team Palestine. This, this is, think about this, for Israel and for many Jews around the world, this is a life or death, life and death subject. Okay? When the extremist Palestinians say From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They are not saying we want a Palestinian state where Palestinians govern and everybody gets along. They're saying they're going to be free from the Jews. It's an an expression of extermination, eradication. Get the Jews out of the land and do whatever you have to to make that happen. Hey, that's why you have a teenage member of Hamas, on October 7th, calling his parents from a Jewish woman's phone, bragging about how he killed 10 Jews. Men, women, and children. And he's sending pics to his parents on WhatsApp, asking him if they can see the pictures of all the Jews that he killed with his own hands. He's bragging about it. And his parents, on the other line, are blessing him, saying, praise Allah, for your work that you've done. They're giving him his blessing, calling him a hero for it. This is why, this is why it's just, it's, it's hard to believe that this is an issue today and that people are supporting that uh, Hamas. I mean, to me, that's like supporting the Taliban or supporting ISIS. But that's the signs of our times, isn't it? And how far we've gone as a country. 
how far we've strayed, but last week we made two foundational and key points regarding the land of Israel. Number one, that God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. And then secondly, God ratified the promise with an un, a unilateral, one-sided, unconditional covenant. It's up to God alone to keep this covenant, and he also said it was forever. It's an everlasting one. And the second, today I, want, I plan to answer two questions in this second sermon on this subject. Number one, why did God choose the people, Israel? And then why did he choose the land that he did? So why the people and why the land? And you have to ask both because they go hand in hand. The answers go hand in hand. And honestly, today's sermon I think is going to feel a little bit more like a Sunday school lesson because I've got so many so many pictures. And, and uh, if you're listening to this online later, you're listening to the audio, you're just going to have a much richer experience if you'd watch it on the YouTube channel, uh, if that goes as, as planned. But uh, because there's just so many pictures that go along with this, it's just going to help you visualize what I'm talking about. And I think it's, it's going to be a, a fun sermon, and I think you're going to have a lot of aha moments, uh, understanding why, you know, why God chose Israel and the land of Israel. But let's address question number one. Why did God choose the people, Israel? Why did he choose the people, Israel? And remember that in Genesis 15, after God ratified that covenant with Abram, he said that Abraham's descendants would be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Basically, what God did there was he just predicted the entire exodus uh, event, right? They're going down, right? Joseph and Moses going into Egypt and being enslaved there, and then Moses bringing them out. So God predicted it, and this is the time when, when Israel formed as a nation into a people. Egypt, if you would like to think of it, is God's incubator where God grew that people into a nation. It's where they multiplied, and after that 400 years, God said, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so, you might want to keep that in your mind for another time. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. But note that after the fourth generation, Moses is going to lead them out. We know that they stopped at Mount Sinai, right, where, where God appeared to Moses. He, they went and got the Israelites, brought them back out to that same mountain, and they received the law there, what we call the law, or the Mosaic law, because God gave it through his mediator Moses. Uh, the law, and the word law, Torah, it can refer to the first five books of the Bible. Remember the law and the prophets? Or it can refer to the law as in the stipulations given to Moses in the Mosaic covenant with Israel that we're talking about here. So, the law, including the, the Ten Commandments and the 16 other com commands, this was going to be their national law. This, the law in context was given to, not to the whole world, but to the geopolitical nation of Israel. It, it wasn't given in a vacuum for all people, but for this geopolitical nation to govern their affairs, the affairs of the nation, in a God-honoring way. It was basically their constitution. The law was the law 
of their land that they were going to possess, that they were going to uh, that they were given by God. And we have to remember that Israel was not a democracy. It wasn't a republic. It was a theocracy. And the law was their constitution for that theocracy where God ruled as their king. So they existed as a real, physical, political kingdom in the world with Yahweh God himself on the throne. And the law was their mode of operation, their, their stipulations as to how they are going to dwell and be a people with this holy God living in their midst. And even though we don't, you know, we've been speaking of the law so negatively in the book of Romans, in our study of Romans, because of uh, people misusing it as a means of salvation. It was never meant to save. It never had a salvific element to it in that you were saved by keeping it because we're saved by grace through faith. Even in Genesis, that was the principle. By grace through faith in Christ. The law was a tremendous blessing to the nation of Israel and to the whole world because it shows us so much about who God is and how we should operate in some ways. Uh, So the law is important to the people of Israel as their, their purpose, God's choosing them. And, and we see this described in Exodus 19, Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. This is the best description as to why God chose to use Israel. It says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, And keep my covenant. This is talking about the conditional Mosaic covenant. Notice the ifs. In the Abrahamic covenant, he says, I will, I will, I will. In the Mosaic covenant, he says, if. It's casuistic. There's a cause and effect. If you you keep it, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So keeping the stipulations of the law is how they carried out this covenant. They go together. And we see function number one, that they were going to be a kingdom of priests. And priests, we know, serve in a mediating fashion. They, they operate as a go-between between two parties. So you've got uh, you know, God, and then you've got man, then you've got someone in between. The God-man, Jesus Christ, right? He's our high priest and we can come to God directly through him uh, that's how a priest works he's our, Christ is our intercessor but also think of this every believer the New Testament says is a priest as well we call it the the priesthood of the believer in that we as believers are trying to reconcile unbelieving men with God and so we're mediators representatives of God and that's a similar function that the nation of Israel had This was their function. They were going to mediate to the nations as a nation between God and the rest of the nations. They're going to be this holy nation to represent God and show people, hey, this is how you're supposed to live with God. This is who God is. This is what he's like. And so God's going to mediate or display the truth of himself to the world through the vehicle or means of Israel. And function number two is that they they wouldn't have to remain a holy nation to do this. Again, uh, Holy means to be set apart or distinct. 
to be holy. It's to be like set aside, set apart as distinct. Uh, if Israel kept the law morally, ethically, and theologically, they would be a unique people in the earth. And they were. And if they kept the law, uh, they would be able to maintain a strict geopolitical and ethnic identity as well. Remember, there was like, there was, you know, there was stipulations regarding marriage. They couldn't intermarry with the, the, the nations around them. They couldn't, you know, even have table fellowship at times, right? So God just wanted them to, to remain as a unique people, uh, a strict geopolitical ethnic identity that set them apart. And they were going to be a beacon of truth in the world by doing that. They would have been different. And it's been said that if any nation ever lived by the law, that it would be the most delightful and peaceable and noble nation that there's ever been. It was just, it's just so righteous. And so concept number one, our deduction from that, is that Israel was to be a godly influence on a wicked world. Genesis 1 through 11 shows mankind universally in rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a nation. From, chooses one man from whom a nation's going to come to influence that rebellious world. So what this tells us again is that God is choosing, in God's choosing of Israel, he's not rejecting the rest of the world that rejected him. He's choosing his primary means to reach the world, to influence the world, and draw the world to himself. And they are going to be salt, and they are going to be light. They're going to they're illuminate the world with truth. They're going to have a preservative effect on this wicked world. And, and this is going to be accomplished in connection with the land. Don't miss that. How are they going to influence the world? By being placed in the Arabian desert in the middle of nowhere? No. By being placed in a strategic spot that we call Israel today. The land of Canaan, the Levant is what it's also called, which Levant just means raised up. But their function and their location go hand in hand. So let's start to address this question number two. Why did God choose the land of Israel? And the answer is that this land of Israel is at the heart of the ancient world. I would even say it's at the heart of the world today, right in the middle of it. And, and it's at this intersection of three major continents, as we think of them, Europe and Asia in Africa, it's, it's this little, the only little green strip of land in that area. And that's where the people are going to travel through. Ezekiel 5.5 says, This is Jerusalem. I have placed her in the center of the nations with countries round about her. So, that's maybe like our memory verse for this whole study. Ezekiel 5 5. I've placed her in the center of the nations with countries round about her. It's a verse that, that's worth getting into the, the thick gray matter in your skull, like I do. And I have some of that in my own brain. So this is the part though where we're gonna we're gonna get into the geography. And for me, that's just fun and fascinating. I love it. For you, you probably think it's dull as dishwater, maybe. Geography. How many of you enjoyed geography class? How many of you didn't? Right? <laughs> so if you think this is as dull as dishwater, I'm sorry. But I also want to remind you that 
This is so important when it comes to understanding God's word because just think, God revealed himself in this geographical location. How, how neat is that to think about? He revealed himself through real historical events in a real geographical place. The events of the Bible unfold in this land, essentially, in this area. And so understanding the geography of Israel helps you understand events in the Bible, which helps you understand God himself. Helps you interpret his word correctly. So uh, remember, this is, this is a record, guys. Sometimes, you know, a lot of people view the, the word of God as if it's just like a bunch of, you know, speculation and philosophy and just mankind sitting around with nothing better to do, writing stuff down. You know, and, but it's not. It is a record. It's a historical record that you hold in your hands with real events, real people, real God. It's not abstract. It's concrete. And when David says, think of this, and when David says in Psalm 9:11, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declare his deeds among the peoples, he's speaking literally. God literally dwelt in Zion. God was their king. He's the living God. Unlike the, the wooden idols who could never do anything for anybody, God was the living God who actually did things for them. Parted the Red Sea, right? That sort of thing. He showed up in battle for them. He did things. He moved among them. And we don't, we don't think about this a lot, but they could visibly see the Shekinah glory presence of God living among them, right there in the tabernacle or the temple. They could see a glory cloud there from the Exodus in 1446 to 592 BC when, because of their persistent disobedience to the law, that glory cloud left. It departed. It is a dramatic narrative in Ezekiel 8 through 11 describing that event. And it actually shows some hesitation on God's part wanting to leave because God's presence sort of goes to the threshold of the temple and then it comes back. It's like God didn't want to leave and then through their disobedience, God finally said, I'm out of here. And he left. And that right there is just a terrible moment. And it's something that we're just so unmindful of today, but it's one of the greatest events in, in Scripture. The glory departed from Israel, bringing an end to the theocratic kingdom that was there. And since that day, they have been under Gentile rule, like Daniel's visions. The times of the Gentiles, it's called. And so, as the apostles indicate, right, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They want that back. They want that three-catic kingdom back. It hasn't come yet because they've rejected the Messiah. And Peter preaches in, in chapter 3, a spirit-inspired sermon saying, hey, if you guys want that, what the prophets wrote about, that prophetic kingdom, that theocratic kingdom return, you as a nation, Israel, have to repent and receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so it's still an expectancy. And by the way, I understand it. God's going to use the terrible kindness of the tribulation period in the, in the last days to bring 
about their repentance and acceptance of the Messiah, and so all Israel will be saved. But that kingdom that's promised is linked with the acceptance of their Messiah. So we need to know that this, the land of Israel has incredible, incredible significance for understanding the Bible. It is, if you will, the stage, the center stage upon which God revealed himself, displayed himself. And the more you understand the land, the more you understand the scriptures. And I think the more you're going to understand, and the more you're going to interpret it historically and grammatically, which is the correct way, right? instead of spiritualizing everything. Um, but listen to what one man said here. A basic knowledge of the physical and climactic features of the land is necessary for a proper intellectual understanding of the Bible's narrative. Geography, by providing a rich and decorative backdrop for the dramatic events of biblical history, heightens the sensory and emotional impact of the narrative. Like when you read your Bible, you start to realize what's going on because you can, you can see the land of Israel in your mind. You know, and you, you understand what's going on there. Another gentleman said the biblical drama was acted out on the stage of geography. And just as the stage props help to put one in the right mood for watching a play or promote understanding of it or become an integral, integral part of the presentation of the drama, a knowledge of biblical geography is essential to an appreciation of the biblical story. So Christianity, again, like I said, it's not like most religions. It's not a bunch of religious ideas and philosophy. The substance, think about this, of our Christian proclamation the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the recital. We're talking about God's historical acts. We're just talking about what God has done. Think about that. The whole world heard about the Exodus. They heard about what God had done. These were historical events. And so let's zoom out now. The land of Israel is located on a land bridge at the heart of the ancient world. This is what's called the Fertile Crescent. And the Fertile Crescent is that sickle-shaped, uh, green-shaded area in the picture that stretches from Egypt to Mesopotamia. It's a land that could be traveled, it could be settled, it could be cultivated, but is surrounded by land that can't. Because to the north, you've got the looming mountains there, the whole mountain range. You've got to the south, the unhospitable Arabian desert, and then to the west, you've got the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, it, when people traveled, like Abraham did, from Babylon by the Persian Gulf to, the, to, to Israel, he took the Fertile Crescent to get there. That's what everybody did. Uh, when kings went to war, they often traveled through Israel. How would you like that, to have all the kings travel through your land with their military? That's what it was like for them. Any kingdom or empire, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, if they were interested in expanding their military, economic, or political interests, uh, commerce or conquest, we might say, they would set their sights on Israel. Because if you control that land, you basically control the ancient world at that, at that, that place. Because of that, this would be the perfect place for God to demonstrate his transcendent sovereignty over the kingdoms of men. And it's also the perfect place to test the nation of Israel as well. Are they going to obey God? 
and have God protect them? Or are they going to disobey God and find insecurity? And the other kingdoms actually overpowering them. Would they lean on Yahweh or would they lean on other nations like Egypt? Are they going to lean on Egypt for their survival? Are they going to lean on their own military might to protect them? Remember, if Israel obeyed God, he said, you don't have to worry about the nations. You'll be the head, they'll be the tail. Don't make for yourself horses. Or don't, don't buy a bunch of horses. Don't breed horses. Don't, don't buy chariots. I'll protect you. Remember, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but Israel was to trust in the name of the Lord their God. And if they disobeyed the law, however, it says he would give them over. Deuteronomy 28, 44 says, you will become the tail and the nations will wag you around. They'll have their way with you. So, perfect place for God to demonstrate his sovereignty over the kingdoms of the earth. Because there's no way a little tiny Israel should be the living in security there. So, zooming in a little further, we see that even though this this little strip of land uh, is only 150 miles long, 45 miles wide. You know, the, the core of it from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, only about the size of New Jersey, right? the fifth smallest state. This is an extremely diverse land, extremely diverse. As you probably saw in the pictures uh, in the, the backgrounds of the song slides this morning, it's a very diverse land with some distinct geographical zones. We tend to think of Israel as a desert, and some of it is, but most of it's actually not. It's farmland and forests and high plains. So the four major geographical zones, uh, first is the coastal plains. You see it over there on the west side. This is the flat, agriculturally rich plain that's perfect for growing crops like wheat and barley and hay. These... Uh, these places, by the way, like the coastal plain, before the Zionist movement in the last century with all the Jews moving back to the land, these lowlands like this in the Jezreel Valley and the Hula, Hula Valley, these were, uh, these were just malaria-ridden swamps. They were, you couldn't live there. They had to drain these swamps, the Jews did. And so what they did is that the Jewish settlers in the 20th century legally bought the land from Arabs, some Arabs who lived there, the few that were there, and, and they were a conglomeration of other ethnic groups, by the way, and so they couldn't classify them just as Arabs. But they would buy the land at exorbitant prices legally, and then they would take the land and make it useful and beautiful again, just like you see there. They also had to reforest it because during, I think it was the Ottoman occupation, they had uh, a tree tax, so everybody cut down their trees because they didn't want to pay taxes. And well, the Jews had to reforest it. And this is what you see in the hill country. The, this, this hill country is the second major zone. And uh, it's, uh, it's hill country that stretches, uh, you know, from, from Hebron in the south to uh, even up into Galilee, in the Galilee area. Um, the, these, are, these are steep, V-shaped, you know, uh, ravines in between. You can't travel. Uh, it's really, it really makes it hard to travel. And so if you're going to travel in the hill country there, you're going to have to go right up through the middle. 
because that's the watershed line. That's, that's where you would walk, right on the peak, all the way <laughs> up the middle there. And Jerusalem's right on that, right on that peak there. Um, that's where you're going to travel if you're going to if you're going to go north and south. Uh, much of this region is forested or terraced. It's it's perfect for growing hillside crops like olives and grapes. Okay, uh, the gap between the hill country and the coastal plains that that you see in this slide here, there's a gap there. That's called the Shvela. There was also a picture of that, and those are like foothills, and that was the buffer zone between the hill country and the coastal plain. Remember a lot of the Philistines were out on the coastal plain? And then and most of it, Israel was up in that hill country, right? In between there was that Shvelah, and that's where Samson lived. He was always duking it out with the Philistines. Or that's where the battle of David and Goliath took place. It was a buffer zone there. Um, but then we've got the Jordan Rift Valley as well. And this is a relatively flat valley. It follows the Jordan River from Dan up in the north down to the Dead Sea in the south. And it makes for easy travel once you're in it, okay? <laughs> going north and south in it. But it's, it's just it's a steep climb to get in and out of. But uh, this is where you kind of find the Judean wilderness and, and where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. It's this dry desert area, mountainous and... Uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved there because it just doesn't get the rain that the hill country does. Uh, then you've got the Transjordan Plateau. Uh, these are desert highlands. They reach 3,000 feet in elevation. And Mount Nebo is over there uh, just on the north side of the Dead Sea. And he was looking across and he could see the promised land there. But that's where he's at when he's, when he's looking at the promised land. And so this is a very diverse land, is it not? And the Bible calls it a good land. That's how God describes it. This is a good land. It has a little bit of everything in it. Very diverse. And the, sharp, uh, the sharpness, the elevation, I think explains partially why the land is so diverse. Think about this. It's, this is interesting. The distance from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem there to Jericho, Tel Jericho in the Jordan Rift Valley, only 138 eight miles. The difference in elevation is 3,500 feet. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho, 850 feet below. So pretty remarkable difference there. Uh, this is why most east and west traffic, instead of going over that Jordan, or Judean hill country, they would travel through the Jezreel Valley uh, up here in the north. So if you're traveling, you're going to go through here instead of try to cross where the red line is. And uh, that's, it just makes for, for easier travel. Uh, Jerusalem, think about this. Jerusalem will sleeve, receive 24 inches of rain a year. That's as much as London. But Jericho, 13 miles away, maybe four inches of rain. Just a massive difference, right? There's a, there's a rain shadow in that Jordan Rift where the rain just doesn't get to it. Um, just like the kings, though. Remember we talked about God's sovereignty over the kingdoms of men in this, in this territory. Just like the kings warring over Israel, the land is designed to test Israel as well. Most kingdoms were built in places where there's a steady supply of water. Babylon... Right, Egypt, 
Pharaoh, where do they build? They build on the river, the Nile River, the Euphrates River. Where's Jerusalem built? Way up in the hill country. And uh, where the, usually there's no river up there. And so Israel isn't like most of the, the other nations and the capitals. It, the, Jerusalem's not like the other capitals. It's a place that is dependent upon rain from heaven, kind of like us out here, right? It's dependent upon rain from heaven. And because of the soil type and the sharp elevation with rapid runoff, I mean, they get rain, but, but it's gone. You know, it runs into those ravines and it, it's, it's out of there. It takes, it takes off through the wadis and the ravines. But that means that they are dependent upon timely rains. And these are the, what are the Bible what the Bible called the early and latter rains. You might have heard of those, the former and latter rains. The early rains or former rains come in October, November. Some of you farmers are like, yeah, I'm getting into this. Uh, right? These are the rains that watered their crops like barley and wheat and hay. Those were crops that you needed to live. You had to have those early rains to live. And then you had the latter rains, which were in March and April, and they watered those hillside crops those terraced crops like grapes and olives. And they used, they were so dependent upon those for just enjoying life. You know, grapes and olives, you think about medicine, wine, cosmetics, lamp oil for, so you could have light at night, scents, that sort of thing, perfume. And uh, Deuteronomy 28.12 says, The Lord said, if you guys keep the law, I'm going to open my storehouse, the heavens, and I'm going to give you Rain on the land in its season. I'm going to bless the work of your hands. But he also says in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 28, if you don't keep the law, well then, heaven's going to be bronze to you. And the earth is going to become like iron. And you're going to experience powder and dust until you're all destroyed. They are dependent upon those rains. Jeremiah 5, 24 through 25 says, They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and latter, in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. So God framed the climate of this land so that it would be a faith lesson for them and for us. Because we learn through his interactions with Israel. So the climate, it's kind of like a leash around their neck. And if they don't keep the law, God gives it a good jerk. You know, <laughs> that's a good way to think of it, I think. If you don't honor me, you're not going to get the rain. And so they, think about this, they hung their life upon God's goodness year in and year out. Uh, the diversity of the land is, is, is crucial. And the diversity of the land would also test the unity among the tribes. They had to depend on each other because, you know, a tribe's over this part and over that part, and they had to share and get along. Uh, that's a lesson for another time, I guess. But four major routes we see here. Uh, four major routes. They're all north and south because, again, the land, there's ravines. You don't want to go over those ravines. You would travel north and south in them. The first is the coastal highway or the Via Maris. This is the, the way of the sea, as it's called in Exodus and Isaiah and Matthew. Uh, this is the, the great international route that runs along the coastline, right? Right through, right through Gaza, Tel Aviv area, kind of right along here. And it goes up through Mount Carmel. There's, a, there's a, a corridor there. There's three right here, actually. But 
you would, you know, travel's free and smooth and easy until you get to Mount Carmel. And then you're forced through three corridors into the Jezreel Valley. All international traffic basically gets forced through there, most of it, whether you're coming from Lebanon, whether you're coming from, you know, Mesopotamia over here in Assyria, you come down through uh, the, the Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Megiddo. It's just the way it is. You know, caravans and messengers, the, the semi-truck drivers and the news reporters of the day would travel that coastal plain uh, because it's just the easiest route. It's the flattest. And if, and, and if you're a king, right, that's the route you want to control. You want to control that Jezreel Valley. You want to control Megiddo and all of that. That's, again, you can, you can tax people. You can control traffic. And as you can imagine, many battles have been fought there. And as the Bible predicts, it's going to play an important role in the end times, right? It's where nations gather against him. Uh, secondly, you see the ridge route. That's the one that runs right through the heart of the country. That's the internal route on that watershed line. That's also called the route of the patriarchs because Abraham and Jacob and Joseph are frequently using it, even in your Bibles. Abraham and Lot, that's where they were standing, right up here, uh, right somewhere in here, in this high point, and they're surveying the land, and they can see Mount Hermon up here in the north, they can see the coastal plain, they can see the Rift Valley, they can see Sodom and Gomorrah down there, uh, we're down there, um, which is interesting, by the way. This promised land is a metaphor for the new earth, right? You're going to inherit the world to come. This promised land is a metaphor for the new earth. And I think based on the promised land, uh, as we see it, in and it's all of its diversity, I would say the new earth, this is me talking here, but you'd have to think the new earth has to have just as much diversity as well. I think it's going to be a fun, diverse place. And I also think that this isn't, I'm not speaking from the Bible here, but Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, it just has to be a picture of hell, isn't it? It's the lowest place on earth, completely decimated, uninhabitable. To me, that's a metaphor for hell, and that's what happens, you know. And uh, I just find that kind of interesting. But. Uh, then you've got the rift route. Again, that travels north and south, Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Um, when, when Jews were, remember the, the, the Jews down here in Jerusalem were going to go to Galilee, what did they do? They did not take the road of the patriarchs. That would have been the fastest, easiest route. They go all the way down here in the Rift Valley and up because they wanted to go around Samaria, those, those dogs, dogged Samaritans. So then you understand why Jesus, how controversial it was for Jesus to go through Samaria and talk to the Samaritan woman. Uh, geography helps understand that. And then the King's Highway. The King's Highway is the one on the, it's way over here. It kind of wraps around to Egypt. But uh, it's over there, difficult route, desert route, robbers, that sort of thing. Some difficult tribes to deal with, right? Edomites, Ammonites, Moabites. Uh, that's the, the route that, that the Israelites wanted to take when they were going to go con- conquer the Promised Land and and the, and, and the Edomites said, no way, you're not coming through here. But that's on the Transjordanian Plateau. And one thing worth noticing is the location of Jerusalem here. Look at where Jerusalem is on this map. Right in the middle, in that high country. Okay, it, 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 not connected to a river. It does have a spring, though, and it has another spring nearby. But uh, it's in the hill country. It's hard to access it. Really hard to access it. 
It's hard to war against just because of the nature. It's on this like south-facing slope of a, of a hill there. And uh, that's why it took the Israelites forever <laughs> to conquer the thing. It was, the, this, the, it was called Jabez, right? The Jebusites. And it took them forever to conquer that. David finally did and renamed it. Right? It was the city of David and the city of Jerusalem. But it's a great location because though you have military and commercial traffic constantly swarming you and going through, uh, Jerusalem's worship center, the worship center at Jerusalem, could enjoy remarkable peace and protection. Militaries and people are coming through, but you have remarkable protection right there where Jerusalem is. And as one of my professors says, it's like, it's like sitting on the median of an international highway. <laughs> people coming by on your right and your left, and here you are right in the middle. And so the idea is that they could influence the world and not be of it. You know what I'm saying? They have some seclusion, but they could still influence the world greatly where they're at. And so, point being, God knew what he was doing when he chose this land because they were to be a godly and instructive influence on the wicked world. How were they going to do it? By God placing them, concept number two, in the most strategic spot on the international highway of the ancient world. My professor, Doug Bookman, says, One might say God prepared the promised land for his chosen people with the same degree of care that he prepared his chosen people for the promised land. God shaped the face of the earth for this. He formed it, Isaiah says, to be inhabited. And he formed it so that he could place a specific stubborn people right here in this place to reach the world through them and show himself the world through his interactions with them. He prepared a kind of land positioned at a particular spot designed to elicit a specific and appropriate response. That's what the Moody Atlas says. So the perfect place for God to reveal himself through his interactions with the Israelites, especially his righteousness and his covenant-keeping character. What What an amazing thing. God placed him at the center of the nations. It's still the center of the nations, isn't it? Isn't the, I mean, it's, no, it's no mistake that whenever something happens in Israel, it's in the headlines. We, we know this is a special place. This is where God dwelt, for heaven's sake. And I believe it's where he's going to dwell again. In his millennial kingdom. And God's, the whole world has their eyes on it including God. Deuteronomy eleven twelve said, God cares for this land. He has his eyes on it at all times. So he's not, I don't think he's done acting on the stage of Israel. There's a lot of end times events that have to be carried out there. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8 say, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land when you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? If Israel kept the law, man, what a powerful, positive testimony they'd be to the nations. People would see how wise they are, see how wise and righteous their God is and how good he is. If they didn't, however, 
Here's the thing. Don't, don't miss this. They'd still be a powerful testimony to the nations, but in a different way. Ezekiel 5.5, 5, we've quoted this, says, This is Jerusalem. I place her in the center of the nations with countries round about her. But that's not the end of it. Ezekiel 5.8 says, I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. Remember, nations are going to pass by and say, wow, look what the Lord has done in the destruction he's brought on his people. So everyone's going to see God in all of his covenant-keeping character, whether it's through blessing them for their obedience or cursing them for their disobedience. Either way, he's keeping his covenant with them, right? That's what he promised. So Dr. Mark Saucy writes, even in her apostasy, Israel will make God's name great to the nation. He gets the glory either way. A little bit of painful truth there. But this information, I think, goes a long ways in understanding whose land it is. The question we've been asking, Israel or Palestine? And we see here that the land and the people and the purposes of God are inextricably linked. You cannot separate the land from the people. The relationship of the people of Israel and the land of Israel demonstrates to the world the transcendence Transcendent sovereignty of God. They're linked. So is their law. The law is linked to that land. There's just so much facts on the ground, evidence that this has always been their land. Even today, I think we see that. We see the results of their rejection of the Messiah, resulting in an exile to the ends of the earth, right? To the four corners of the globe. But we also see God's covenant-keeping character in that after many genocide, the word genocide was in, came about as a result of the Holocaust, by the way. Because of the genocides and different things that took place around the world, the pogroms in Russia, God brought them back to the land to preserve them. Now there's millions of them back in the land of Israel. And we'll talk about that more in the future. But they, to be dispersed among the nations like that and then to return and still have their national identity, that's unheard of. They're the only people in the world to do that, and I think it demonstrates God is not done, and he keeps covenant. I mean, have you guys heard of the Hittite people recently? No. They were a great nation, too. What about the Babylonians? Israel is still there. They're, they're immortal. <laughs> uh, as one man put it. But by way of personal application, let's go home with the thought that just like Israel, he desires for us to be his representatives. That was their function. That's our, our, our function as well. We want to represent, we want to mediate between God and this world. We want to be salt in it. We want to be light in it. We want to help preserve, right? We want to illuminate. We want to teach people the truth, share the gospel, that sort of thing. But another way I think we can be salt and light in this world right now is by showing our support and our love for the Jewish people. And that's why we're doing this series. And, and we can do it at a time when much of the world is turning against them. Unfortunately. I know they're not perfect. I wouldn't even say that the nation is godly. And I know they have their flaws too. But think about this. Even the Apostle Paul, who took more heat from the Jews <laughs> than anybody else, 
He called them enemies of the gospel. He still said they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. And he said that their hardening is only partial, number one, and it's temporary, number two. And his motives for ministry, for his ministry among the Gentiles, was due in part to reach the Jews so that they would see what Christ does for us and therefore some of the Jews would get jealous and want Christ as well. Paul was, loved the Jewish people so much, the Jews that even persecuted him, so much that he was willing to give up his own salvation for them if he could. So let's continue to be salt and light in this world. Uh, Lord God, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for our time and your, your word. We're so thankful for We're thankful for the truth that's in it. It's refreshing to hear. And how amazing, how wonderful to think about how wise you are. Now you know exactly what you're doing. And I pray that we come away from today's sermon with a, a better understanding of just why you chose Israel, why you chose this land, and just be in awe and wonder of how amazing you are and how your, your plan is just continually unfolding and that you are in control of world history and not man. And help us to be salt and light in it and, and advance, advance the gospel. Help us to be a light uh, to the nations and the people around us in our spheres of influence. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.